called the Middle Watch, but Stone's first captain used to call it the Midnight Watch, and Stone had thought of it as such ever since. He liked the name. It gave a touch of warmth and magic to those four dark hours when the captain and crew slept below, and he alone kept them safe. The Midnight Watch required vigilance, so he always tried to get some good sleep beforehand. While other officers might visit the saloon after dinner to play cards with the off-duty engineers, or even have a shot of whiskey, Stone would retire to his cabin. By eight o'clock he'd be in bed reading, and by nine he would be asleep. That gave him almost three hours' sleep before his watch began. But on this cold Sunday night, halfway between London and Boston, he found himself still awake at nine-thirty. He was thinking about the icebergs he'd seen. The lively bounce and throb of his bunk beneath him told him that the ship was still steaming at full speed. He thought the captain might slow down as darkness fell, given there was ice about, and he was worried they might keep up full speed for the whole night. Stone pictured the men crowded into cramped living quarters low in the ship's bow, the bosun, the carpenter, the able-bodied seamen, the greasers, trimmers, firemen, and donkeymen, lying in their bunks with less than half an inch of steel between their sleeping heads and the black Atlantic hissing past outside. He flicked on his reading light and took up his book again, Moby Dick, a gift from his mother. The novel soothed him. He thought no more about icebergs, but instead imagined Starbuck aloft, scanning the horizon handsome in his excellent-fitting skin, radiant with courage and much loved by a noble captain. In the wireless room, Cyril Evans, a bespectacled twenty-year-old with black hair pasted flat to his head with machine oil, was at work at his equipment. He loved the new technology. He'd been a star pupil at the Marconi School in London, mastering quickly the dash-dot sequences of Morse code learning first the rhythm of each letter, and then of complete words and sentences. Nowadays, he even dreamt in the code. Evans had been happy to be appointed to the Californian when her wireless set was installed on the previous voyage, but life on board soon became difficult. Captain Lord, on their first meeting, looked at him as if he were part of the machinery, a box with wires and dials, and had referred to the equipment as an instrument for tittle-tattle and gossip. The wireless room doubled as Cyril's sleeping quarters, and within this cramped space he worked from seven o'clock in the morning until eleven o'clock at night, seven days a week. Whenever he walked on the open deck, sailors laughed at his thin arms and thick glasses. During a lifeboat drill, he had been assigned the role of panicking passenger— and when the seamen asked him to sit in the stern and look pretty, and then to put on a lady's hat and cry for help, he tried to join in the fun, but at the end of it all he was humiliated. He learned quickly that he was just the Marconi man and had to look after himself. But he was not entirely alone. Charlie Groves, the third officer, loved the wireless equipment too, and spoke kindly to him. And Evans made friends with Jimmy Gibson, the apprentice officer, who was the same age he was, and had also once been the panicking passenger. Don't worry, Sparks, Gibson told him. We all have our turn. Evans was grateful for this encouragement, 
but he hoped for more than graduation from his role in lifeboat drills. He had grander ambitions. He hoped he might one day be a hero, like Jack Binns, the wireless man on the White Star's Republic, who only two years earlier had brought ships racing to the rescue when his own vessel had been rammed in thick fog off New York. It was Jack and his Morsky, not the sailors, who had saved all the passengers. And this quiet Sunday night, he thought, might just be his opportunity. Because a little before half-past ten, the deck beneath his feet became suddenly still, and the usual rattle of his cabin door stopped. Something odd was happening with the ship. Evans took off his headphones and waited. Seconds later, the deck began to come to life again, slowly at first, but then building up to a pounding, spasmodic thumping. It was not the...